is called Arms for Oblivion All right. because that's what time hath in the wallet at his back. Okay, so... Now that I've alienated everyone who cares to listen to this podcast, uh, welcome to our history podcast. This is a podcast about history. Our very first episode. Uh, my Indeed. name is Scott Hunter. And I'm Callum Howe. And um, so the reason why we decided to do this podcast is that we both went to university together. We both... Um, we both have history degrees from the Embassy, the London School of both Economics. Have something to, we both have to have something to do with all our free yeah. time, unemployed. It, dear God, we, we graduated, and dear God, I must talk about history to someone. Um, I, I, I've gone, so we both um, did the exact same course, uh, talking about our background at the Embassy, and I, I also have a Master's in Modern History from King's College London. I am not nearly so illustriously qualified. <laughs> I merely have an undergrad degree. But, uh, yeah, if you're, if you're expecting our diversity of opinion, you're talking to two people who did pretty much the exact same education. <laughs> so it's great. Um, why, why are we even both here, Scott? Uh, why are we both here? Because we're going to talk today um, about a very recent piece of history. Uh, we're going to talk about the Bush administration's decision to invade Iraq in 2003. Right. So why have we chosen this topic specifically uh, to lead off? Well, I think it's always good to begin with something uh, that people remember. I mean, I, I definitely do. Yeah. I was, um, a firm, I was a firm hawk at the age of eight. <laughs> I've come to yeah. regret this decision. But... Yeah. You're, uh, you're, you're 22, aren't you? Yes. You're 22. I'm 26. So I, I, uh, I was a bit older at the time. I was about 11. In, um, yeah, 11, two, mid-2003, I was about 11. Um, and you were you were merely eight. Merely eight. What did you come to a more wise decision than me back then, Scott? Oh, I remember. I remember feeling like it was a very big deal at the time. You know, mm. it was the first kind of big war I'd been aware. Even though obviously I, I'd lived in a time as a younger child. Your first war is always the most yes. special. Well, yeah, but it felt like a very big deal, of course, and um, yeah, very, very, very surreal. But I remember. Yeah, I remember a lot of people, emotions ran very high, but they still do, obviously. Uh, it's still ongoing. I mean, you know, uh, hundreds of thousands of people have died. died. In, yeah, I know. And it's still going on. So. It's still going American military action in the Middle East is still going on in Iraq. And um, But it was, a, it was a war that really, and continues to, but... Uh, probably doesn't even require an introduction, before. almost, Scott. Yeah, because I, I assume most people You've listening to this heard podcast... Of it. Yeah, you've probably heard of it. Most people, I assume... Were alive at the time. Who um who listens to me? I don't think we got, we're going to attract many young readers, uh, reader listeners. Listen, listen yeah. Us. Uh, so and it's particularly interesting to me because it's a war that well, the historical opinion on it, the mainstream uh, opinion of historians, differs a lot from public perceptions of a war and its causes. And um, we're, we're going to get into that get into mm. that later when we talk about the causes. But I find it I find it very interesting historiographically because obviously our understanding is still uh, so dramatically changing. But also there's a big gulf between public wisdom and the historical establishment. And uh, I think more broadly to talk about why we're doing this, we think that there's a lot of good history related content out there on the internet in terms of podcasts and articles and things like that. But it's something that I think diverges from our experience of learning about and our education in history. Insofar as the public perception of history is very narrative-oriented, it's all mm -hmm. about the story and explaining that in a very sort of chronological focus, you know, very descriptive. Whereas in terms of 
how it's actually taught, it's more in an analytical fashion, which is in some ways also the more useful and, at least in our opinion, interesting part of history. Yeah, so our attempt is to sort of replicate... Um, the kind of discussion you might get in a in an undergraduate seminar. That, that, that's the that's, level. That oh yeah. That's the level that we're aiming. We're, we're at. really pitching this to these guys. Scott. Oh. <laughs> oh. No, I, fi- I find undergraduate seminar. I find them exciting. But uh, but just in case we for yourself. <laughs> in case we've got any um any kind of professional historians listening, the level that we're aiming for, you know, it's not going to be PhD level. We're not claiming to be experts. We're we're aiming for kind of an an undergraduate level oh. of of discussion and reading a bit more analytical than what you'd find in a lot of public discussion but you know we we don't have time sadly to write a page so if we make mistakes it's not our fault we 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 have read we have read books your fault for listening to us (laughs) (laughs) we we've read books we have i've not looked at the cia archives unfortunately no one has uh but apart from the archivists themselves i'm sure we'll get access one day scott yeah one one day eventually yeah when when Yeltsin comes to power in America, he'll open <laughs> all the all the brief, argos, a brief, brief, a brief, brief glorious moment. Yeah. Okay, but just to let you know, that's the kind of what we're aiming for. We're looking we're trying to look at this more analytically, but you know, we're if we make mistakes, that's just us being human. So let's start off by talking about I think a lot of people may not actually know uh how historians do their research. And that varies quite a lot, but when it comes to researching a topic like this that's so recent, how how do we actually know what happened when it comes to? Obviously, we know Iraq was invaded. That was. I mean, that's something that. that was, well, this is something that changes from time period to time period. Yeah. Obviously, the kind of sources that you have to draw on. And I think for contemporary history, what's kind of interesting is how history and journalism kind of get blurred. Yeah. So whenever we're discussing something like the Iraq War, which was obviously massively in the public eye at the time, the perceptions and the rec- and the sort of primary recording of the war is mostly done in sort of public institutions. Yeah. So we're mostly talking about the institutions themselves, so state institutions, so the reports and the records of the American government, the State Department, Department of Defense, which are obviously very important and it provides the inside of view, but also highly limited insofar as they are, first of all, in many instances still classified since defense is such a sensitive topic, and also uh, do not necess- and are also constructed with the public in mind and the contemporary public, not with the truth, <laughs> I yeah. have to say, or, hi- or what historians want. Yeah, um, and it's important as well to note the things that we don't have. Uh, namely, in, when we're talking about kind of um, government decision making, we don't really have anything that the intelligence agencies were working with. We we have um, some reports that they made to the, to the government, but we don't have any of the internal CIA files, and we won't have until twenty thirty three. I think it's but, fine. We'll do a retrospective yeah. in uh, fifteen years. So the way the CIA works is that every year they publish uh, a selection of documents from thirty years previous. A I mean, selection. Yeah, they, they don't publish everything, but the CIA archivists publish a selection of documents that they think are most relevant to that year. Hmm. And sometimes that works out well, sometimes it, uh, we're still having problems. I know for the, uh, this is a bit off topic, but I know for the 1953 coup against Mossadegh, uh, in 1983 the CIA published uh, their review, and then 10 years later they said, oh, that was crap. Uh, we'll, we'll give you more. And I think... It either recently came out, or, or there's going to come out very soon, and I think people are still going to have problems. Yeah, there. I mean, the problem is is that, you know, 30 years is 
in many ways, not a long time. Like, yeah. in the case of Iran, that's four years after the Iranian Revolution, maybe re- yes. releasing a load of secret yeah. documents about a coup there is yeah. not the best yeah. thing to do. So, um, but yeah, the point is to say that uh, we don't have a lot of secret documents. Uh, there's a lot of stuff that we don't know. But also, there's, there's stuff that we do know. We do have um, a lot of intern- some internal documents in the administration, publicly published documents and stuff like that. So that's what we're working on. And the other part of it is, I guess, contemporary journalism yes. and investigation. But the problem with that is, of course, uh, I mean, at the time, the sort of checks and balances that the Fourth Estate were supposed to present yeah. were not necessarily uh, doing yeah. their best. Yeah, But uh, public opinion, though, is a big part of the lead-up mm. to the Iraq invasion that we'll talk about. And, um, yeah, this is... But this is all a preface to say, talk about how we know what we know, and also... If, if we're completely wrong in the future, it's not that we made a mistake, it's just that new information came out. <laughs> okay? <laughs> well, historians are always always trying to evolve that understanding of things, especially when you're uh, modern historians like us. Yeah, but I mean, it is interesting looking at the historiography of it. That there is clearly a development between mm. the books that were written, you know, a couple of years after and the books that are being written now. Yeah. Like, I think that it's interesting, this whole... To- the whole WMD debate has almost completely sort of dropped out of the discussion yeah. in, like, recent uh, literature. Yeah. I wonder uh... why that is. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Okay, so our next section, we're going to talk about, uh, just to give people an overview, because we want to approach this as basically, even for a topic like this that most of us probably live through, as if you um, you might not know anything. Or, uh, or just so everyone's on the same page, we'll, we'll talk about the chronology yeah, well, we'll talk. Making process. I mean, I guess uh, the sort of the lead up to the war really begins with the end of the first Gulf War in 1991. So obviously, Saddam had <clears throat> invaded uh, Kuwait, essentially in an attempt to bolster the Iraq's um, faltering economy and an- annex its oil supplies following the end of the Iran-Iraq War. And an international coalition was assembled, headed by the United States, that succeeded decisively. In in driving Iraqi forces out of Kuwait itself. At that moment, a key decision was taken by the Bush senior administration that they would not pursue Iraqi forces further into the into Iraq itself. They would only drive them out of Kuwait. And this is despite a wide-scale uprising in Iraq amongst its Shiite communities in the east and Kurdish communities in the north, who were being encouraged by the American administration to revolt and had been promised support. This was... A decision taken, as I say, by the Bush senior administration, which contained within it many of the key individuals who would go on to serve in the Bush junior administration and would also play a key role in driving them towards war in 2003. So I guess the key question here is, why did those figures like Cheney... Yeah. um, um, Rumsfeld? No, uh, Rumsfeld actually wasn't. Uh, Cheney was Secretary of Defence at the time. Yeah. Who was the other one? Colin Powell. Colin Powell, yeah. Yeah, he's the other major one. Uh, why did they change their minds in the intervening 12 years? Mm. I mean, the first thing to say is many of them did not change their minds. One of the other key uh, figures of the war, Paul Wolfowitz, yeah. was in favour of intervention right from the start, and he regarded it as a major betrayal Yeah, that they did not intervene in favour of the uh, revolting Shiites mm. and Kurds. Yeah, a lot of this discussion revolves around basically different uh, different decision makers and different factions in the kind of upper echelons of the Republican Party mm. at the time. So how come you know you've got people like Wolfowitz and um, Faith Fife F E I T H? Uh, he came along later. He was kind mm. of under secretary under secretary of defense in um, the Bush Junior administration. Uh, why these people who were always very pro intervention, mm. and then you have more moderates. Um, 
Yeah, and I suppose our question, as as you said, is what, why the different um, why the different decisions mm. in 1991 and 2003? Uh, let, let's talk briefly about the Clinton administration. Okay, uh, what did they actually do? There was a there was in fact an intervention under that began under Bush Senior Operation Provide Comfort, which was essentially a no fly zone and a special forces and humanitarian intervention into northern Iraq to support the Kurds, which was. Actually, um, enormously successful in terms of resources. They mostly managed to secure what's now Kurdistan with actually minimal conflict against Iraqi forces themselves who mostly retreated under the threat of American intervention. And that essentially established a de facto independent Kurdistan that would uh, go on until uh, 2003, despite fighting a civil war with itself uh, for about five of those. The... Over this period, the essential debate is the beginning of the of Iraqi disarmament because uh, Iraq had was known to have chemical weapons, at least, which it had used uh, during the Iran-Iraq War, mm-hmm. most infamously against the town of Halabja, a Kurdish town in eastern Iraq. And as a part of its ceasefire with uh, America and as part of the bro- uh, overall peace process, Iraq was required to destroy all WMDs that it possessed and also the methods of delivering and producing these weapons. This was, of course, a tricky process, since Iraq was a totalitarian regime, and was not exactly keen on cooperating with a UN Weapons Inspection Committee, which had a number of problems trying to investigate uh, Iraqi military facilities and government uh, records, was continuously being blocked. Of course, the Iraqis themselves weren't particularly keen on cooperating with an international regime, which it was also still basically fighting, as we say, in the yeah. north of Iraq with American special mm-hmm. forces, and also was operating a no-fly regime over this entire period over large parts of the country. The weapons inspection regime under the Clinton administration, as I say, had a number of problems with Iraqi intransigence. On the one hand, obviously, they were refusing access to, as we say, facilities and things like that, but they were also violating the regime in other ways. Like, for instance, they would destroy their weapons, but they would not do it under supervision. Yeah. So they would reveal previously... Uh, they had they would reveal weapon stockpiles, which they had denied the existence the day before, <laughs> and then announce that they were suddenly destroyed. So, so typical dictator bullshit. Yeah, pretty much. Uh, which, as you can imagine, hardly enamoured anybody of the Iraqi regime or inclined them to believe anything that they said. Over this time, the Clinton administration had significant problems, though, because as a part of the overall, in order to try and force Iraq to comply, there was implemented enormously controversial sanctions regime, mm-hmm. uh, economic sanctions, yeah. essentially restrictions on what could be imported into Iraq, and especially restricting Iraq's oil exports, which massively damaged the Iraqi economy, and in particular, it created enormous humanitarian costs yeah. as the Iraqi economy suffered massively. And as time went on, the international regime which the USA was heading was becoming increasingly unwilling to continue this regime, particularly Russia and France. And this was despite Iraqi intransigence mm-hmm. in this regard. The Clinton administration, as time went on, was also probably becoming more and more willing to... Yeah. <clears throat> take this, uh, take uh, sort of military action against Iraq, in particular culminating probably in the biggest offence, which was Operation Desert Fox in 1998, December of 1998, where they launched an enormous series of airstrikes against uh, key Iraqi facilities, which they, essentially against Iraqi um, 
mostly chemical weapons production facilities, but also several key command and communications yeah. structures and government facilities. Well, I think, uh, not talking too much to about the Clinton administration, but I think there's definitely a undercurrent of um, desire for long-term regime change in Iraq. Yeah, uh, there, there, there wasn't... it was indeed. It was even enshrined into law. The yeah. uh, the nineteen ninety eight yes. Iraq Liberation. Ah, Act. yes, that's what I was, I was trying to look that up in my notes. Uh, everyone at home, you don't have to remember stuff to be a historian. <laughs> we, we have it all in front of us, written down. I mean, you do, Scott. I do. Well, yeah, I, I, I do. I'm just Callum is Callum's, uh, rattling this off from memory. <laughs> yeah, indeed, the, the Iraq Liberation Act uh, committed the US to uh, to long term regime change in Iraq. Whatever, whatever that, whatever that means. Yeah, whatever that, whatever that means. As always with these things. Um, it could mean it could basically mean anything. Yeah, I mean, because obviously it was passed under the Clinton administration, yeah. which didn't, in the end, really have a desire to invade Iraq. Yeah, well, Clinton had his own problems with his own illegal wars. So, <laughs> 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 so you know, by uh, I think by '98, he was uh, he was just going to ride out those two years yeah. and hope not to uh, not to bomb too many people. <laughs> yeah, I think by the late period, they weren't really looking to do that much more military action. Yeah, and indeed, as we sort of move to the end of the Clinton administration, uh, in the sort of presidential debates, it's actually interesting that Bush presented himself not quite as an isolationist, but definitely as someone opposed to the interventionist character of the Clinton regime. Yeah. Whilst, it, whilst on the one hand, he did commit himself to an expansion of the American military, mm. he did not seem to be keen on, at least the way he framed himself was that he would not actually use that expanded yes. military capacity. <laughs> Well, that's, that's, I mean, that's kind of interesting. That's kind of yeah. a recurrent well, theme. Yeah. In... Well, to, to what extent do you think it's this cycle of America trying to escape its Cold War interventionist legacy and just failing? Well, it's it like if you've got like a, a trillion dollar a military. military industrial complex, you've got to use it on something. <laughs> yeah, you've got to bomb someone, don't you? Um, I've, got, I've got a good way to summarise um, Bush's decision to invade Iraq, which I, I guess I'll lead off with here. I won't tease you, listener. Oh. Um, poor George Bush just wanted to make the world a better place in the only way an American can, which is to bomb it until everyone gets along. <laughs> Basically, I mean, that's a, a crude summary, but I, uh, I mean, that's what the next 40 minutes are going to be about. That's summarise my argument. Yeah, basically, because uh, I suppose we'll get to this right now because we are on the Bush administration. Yeah. Uh, essentially, contrary to popular, to popular wisdom, the Bush administration genuinely did want to do a good thing. Uh, and, and they failed utterly. <laughs> they failed, in, but, or failed in a way that only a person who desperately wants to do something good yes, can. But, but, but um, you know, common common arguments um, about the war in the public wisdom are that you know it was a it was a grab for oil, or it uh, was a, it was they, they faked evidence of WMDs. But as far as we can tell from the evidence that we have, the Bush administration genuinely thought Saddam was dangerous and they wanted to get rid of him. Yeah. I mean, the question with this is not, is one of a case of, like, you know, never underestimate the power of willful ignorance. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, okay, but let's, let's roll back a little and just do the last bit of chronology, which is... Um, like, how did they actually well, lead to... Florida miscounts a vote. George Bush is, <laughs> Jr. is president. Jeb, Jeb intervenes. <laughs> Thank you, Jeb. Uh... <laughs> oh, God. Okay. Uh... Oh, it, it feels so quaint to be talking about early 2000s US politics in light of our current year. Current year, <laughs> in, in, in light of the current year, okay. Yeah. 
I don't want to date this episode too much, oh. but we are in fear of nuclear war. Scott, this, is, this is our hot take, our hard-hitting analysis. Yeah. What is it with Donald's? What? Donald's. <laughs> Donald's. Oh. Uh, fucking hell. All right. Um. Okay, so... Okay. So, yeah. So, Bush comes in in uh, November... In, sorry, February of 2001. Yeah, 2001, yeah. that would be... Yeah, because well, the, the election is... At the yeah, but, yeah, the beginning of 2001. One. And for those first, like, nine months, uh, the US, internationally, doesn't really do that much. No? The, Scott. Yeah. What might have happened to change that? Well... Oh, I can't think of what... September might... 2000... <laughs> all right, well, won't do that joke too much. Yeah. It does. 9-11 happens, all right. And one of the major um, historiographical questions in this topic is how important is 9-11 to the administration's thinking? And in what way as well? Yeah. Because the problem is is that obviously there is a a focus, there's definitely a focus on Iraq all the way from the end of the war. Yeah. But does that mean that there probably was a desire, like a consensus on regime change in the Bush administration even before 2001? And also secondly, was was 9-11 a catalyst, actually a causative factor in changing the way that the Bush administration actually saw Iraq? Did they genuinely think that 9-11 was an evidence of Iraqi, of Iraq's dangerousness, Iraqi duplicity? Or was it just an excuse to mobilise public support, etc.? Yeah, definitely. And 9-11 happens, and then uh, obviously the US intervenes in Afghanistan, I think, in December 2001. Yes. Very, very, very quickly. Very quickly. Uh, the, the US gets launched into <clears throat> into foreign action. And then... Uh, it's, it's, about... it's already... It's important to know, it, it is right from the start that the focus is on Iraq. Yeah. Even a couple of days after 9-11, they're already discussing that the key threat is... Al-Qaeda, mm. Afghanistan, and Iraq. It's always those three, right from yeah. the beginning. Uh, and even as early as November of 2001, yeah. they've already ordered the Pentagon to start beginning its war planning yeah. for an invasion of Iraq. Uh, of course, that doesn't necessarily mean that they were committed to that. Obviously, mm. you can plan for a war, and it's one thing to be thinking about it, but it's yeah. nothing to actually be decided on going ahead with it. Yeah, I think Gregory Gores in his book, um, he has a general book on the international relations of the Persian Gulf, um, but he has a very good chapter on um, on Iraq, which I've sourced a lot from. And yeah, I think he quotes in there, uh, Bush, I think in December, or maybe even earlier, uh, basically says to one of his aides, we're going to get Saddam. <laughs> like, it's, uh, basically, Saddam, you, you think attacks on Americans and everyone in the Bush administration, Saddam was on their mind. Yeah. And then <clears throat> over the next, um, about 18, less than 18 months, um, because I think intervention was March or April. It was, uh, yeah, it began, it, in, March it began in March 2003. Yeah, so in the intervening, yeah, that's, that's 18 months yeah. on from 9-11. And uh, it's that intervening period is essentially the Bush administration investigating and building its case for war. Yeah. In a rather interesting fashion, I guess. Uh, the problem that the Bush administration had, essentially was a real lack of actual resources yeah. in terms of intelligence. Mm-hmm. So, And this is, when we talk about the power of willful ignorance, w- the reason why that's so important and such a catalyst is essentially that the United States was basically operating on nothing. They had very little yeah. to go on. And partially this was to do with, for instance, the intransigence of the Iraqis in terms of the UN sanctions regime. It was also to do with the long-standing conflict with Iraq, mm-hmm. which basically meant that... Uh, the, uh, institutions like the CIA could not really 
they had very little information about the inside of Iraq, yeah. precisely because the sort of totalitarian regime operated by Saddam had sort of frightened everybody into not cooperating by this point. Yeah. So um, they had basically nobody on the ground. And this is why the power of willful ignorance is so important, because it capitalizes on that lack of actual resources, and yeah. so they are desperately grasping after every little piece that they have. Yeah. And this is in the context of after 9-11, which is obviously a massive intelligence fuck-up, so they're already inclined to not necessarily trust what the sort of respected yeah. institutions are saying. Essentially, what what I think I'm going to argue, and I think maybe maybe Callum will agree with me, is 9-11 was such a blindside from an intelligence perspective. Yeah. It basically, in the administration, ratchets every single threat up to 11. So suddenly, mm. they're constantly wondering what they don't know. Yeah, but it's not only that, but it's in terms of the intelligence, yes, but it's also... Something that really, well, I'll talk about this more later, but something that really reinforces all of their preconceptions that they have coming in. Yeah. Because it's not just an intelligence failure, as they see it. It's a failure of everything else as well. Because they're a new administration, as we say, mm. you know, it's only a few months in. And as they see, this is the product of American foreign policy up, to, up until this point, you know. Yeah. From at least, for at least the last ten years. Mm. Yeah, and it's... um. Yeah, I think I think we are both going to argue that 9-11 is rather central to the American decision-making process. Yeah. Um, and it really does make them... Essentially, it creates the need to do something, first of all. Uh, you have to, to do something. Yes. Indeed, well, you need. You have to do something. And if you're America, you have to drop a few bombs, basically. Because yeah. you get attacked and you've got this trillion-dollar military. And what, what else are you going to do? What else are you going to do with it? But, but invade something. Yeah, well, basically. That is... That is essentially what we have in terms of... Um, when all you have is a hammer. Yeah. Everything looks like... Well, yeah, because we know, f- um, based on internal testimonies um, and uh, State Department documents, as as early as, you know, weeks after 9-11, the administration is thinking about Saddam. Um, yeah. They, they, had, uh, they had weapons um, they needed to use to do something in response to 9-11. Mm. They had all a massive army, so... You know, they had to invade someone, and Saddam was on the block. I mean, it's Not to say he didn't deserve to be on the block. (laughs) So let's actually talk about uh, the question of the WMDs. Yeah. And sort of, as we said, we've already staked our position on this, and we're both in agreement that, yeah, obviously there weren't any WMDs, but they probably weren't lying either when they said that they thought there were WMDs there. Yeah, but essentially, if you were um, in the Bush administration in 2002, 2001, 2002... And you, you know, have for lack of all other information, you're just going on what you the dealings you had with Saddam in the past. It wasn't unreasonable to think that Saddam might have chemical weapons. Uh, yeah, I mean, it was. Did have it wasn't just the point. position of the Bush administration. Yeah. Uh, the Clinton administration thought yeah. that he had. Um, yeah. Definitely, they thought that he was developing biological yeah. weapons as well. Yeah. I mean, Saddam was probably trying to get a nuke throughout the 80s. Yeah. You, you essentially have three tiers of, of weapons. The chemical weapons, which I he think... Definitely, it, he had at one he point. He had at one point, and I think it was most reasonable to have believed. You have yeah. biological weapons, which is like, there's some evidence, there was some evidence. Yeah. And then I think the nuclear weapons were probably the most shaky. Oh yeah, uh, by far. Like, like, yeah. But uh, essentially, it was a case not of fabricating evidence... But I think if we look at um, the kind it, it of was clear, that getting, yeah, if you look at the actual sources of their evidence, they're clearly all unsatisfactory. But it's a case of basically um, confirmation bias. Yeah, the but, Bush administration looks at um, looks at stuff that confirms its its views. I mean, it's worth going into detail about 
the kind of stuff that they were going on. So, yeah. as we said, they had virtually no sources on the ground. So their main sort of source about Iraq was a guy called uh, Ahmed Chalabi, mm. who would go on to be their sort of... Uh, who was positioning himself to be their... I don't want to say puppet leader, but... Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, their, the, the natural replacement for Saddam in the event of an intervention mm. with the American administration... Uh, coincidentally, would also go on to basically be proved to be like an Iranian agent, <laughs> uh, predictably. Um, but he, yeah, he was a major sort of figure within the administration as a, as a, an Iraqi Shiite himself. Mm. And his organization was, as it was pushing for war, was basically providing them with uh, basically completely fabricated evidence about about what was actually going on in the on the ground in Iraq. Because of course they were trusted because they were Iraqi dissidents. But they were basically making it all up. So, for instance, one of the most uh, famous reports about the war was, let's see, I can't remember his name, Adnan al-Haideri, who was a member of um, uh, Chalabi's organization, who basically provided the evidence for a massive report in the New York Times about uh, Iraq's uh, various weapons of mass destruction. Yeah. And then after, uh, immediately after the war, it was proven to be all bullshit, <laughs> since there were no weapons anywhere near uh, mm-hmm. where he said that they were. The other, my other favorite piece of uh, evidence was uh, the testimony of Al. I can't remember his full name. Al Libby, a uh, supposedly a senior Al Qaeda commander, who uh, testified that essentially that they were cooperating with Iraq yeah. in terms of the training, uh, the production of the, the training in the production and the delivery of chemical weapons. Uh, it was later revealed that uh, this testimony had been taken from Al Libby under enhanced interrogation techniques, basically torture. And then, when uh, questioned about this, the CIA said that they now believe that uh, Al Libby had deliberately misinformed them on the ba- on to provoke them into attacking Iraq. So the CIA's explanation for the war is that they got three D chess by a guy <laughs> that they had three lo- D chess by a guy that they had locked in like a cardboard box for three weeks. Yeah. Uh, God, the actual world of intelligence gathering is so ridiculous. If you look into, yeah. <laughs> yeah, just this one guy says something, and they base. Well, well, well to be fair, that that's, that's what that, they, yeah. This this is how administrations work. Is you have these intelligence officers on the ground, yeah. and they say, and they give a report in which they mm. say, "Well, this is our, this is what this guy said. Yeah. Take it as you will." And that gets passed up to his superior and says, "Well, we have evidence to believe that this may yeah. be the case." And then it gets passed up to his superior, who's actually explaining it to the government. He says, yeah. "Well, I've heard this," and then it gets told to Bush and um, said, "It's this." Yeah, and then well, um, basically, then the government chooses and chose um, what to accept and what not to based on <clears throat> you know their preferences. Yeah, and I mean, and let's not literally underestimate the power of not reading things. Yes. One of the most important documents that the uh, the Bush administration produced was the September 2002 National Intelligence Estimate, which which argued strongly in favour of the war, at least in terms of its summary, but there were within it, you know, major reservations about the quality of the intelligence. Problem was... Probably nobody actually read it. We know for a fact that Bush didn't read it, and neither did Condoleezza Rice, and most members of Congress probably didn't read anything more than the summary either. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And um, in terms of intelligence as well, you've got the WMD issue, you have the links to Al-Qaeda, and then you also have the post-war estimates or predictions for what's going to happen, because that was also a big element in um, the, the administration's decision. Well, uh, we'll get on to that, because that's, <laughs> uh, that's an interesting topic in itself. Yeah. Um, should we talk about that now, but or should we talk about that sort of the end of the episode? Because uh, yeah, we'll, we, we'll because what, we should probably do like an epilogue about how okay. things end up. Yeah, but I do think that 
an optimistic uh, interpretation, shall we say, of how a post... Uh, absolutely. A, a post made, it was a major decision-making uh, factor in their decision to invade, because uh, they did seem to believe, or at least chose to believe, that, you know, they'd be in and out in a year. Yes. Yeah. So they, it's all part of selling it to themselves and also selling it to um, to the nation, I guess, to... Um, yeah, to, in order to say that, you know, it's need to invade, and also it will be easy. Don't worry. Yeah, I mean, uh, maybe we should talk about it now then, because I well, think... I think we should talk about it, because okay. I think... I've, definitely, we can talk about what actually happened later, yeah. but I think the, the decision-making process is important yeah. to recognise. When we talk about the decision-making process here, we're not just talking about the decision on the part of the civilian administration to go in. We're also talking about how they plan the war. Yeah. Because it's very easy now to look at all of this crap and say, well, clearly it was a disaster from the start. Yeah. But to fuck up as badly in Iraq, it's not just the decision to go in in the first place. It's how you how they decided to go about it. Yeah. In particular, that turned it into such a pile of... Yeah. Well, <laughs> pile, of, a, pile of shit. Essentially, what the, what the administration chose to believe, uh, they chose to believe the most... They, they had different predictions in front of them. We know that. We know that yeah. they've got reports uh, basically saying it will be bad. Uh, but they chose to believe the most optimistic predictions. Um, essentially, they believed that they could go in, they could remove Saddam and his kind of inner circle. And, and that basically a new government would just yeah. appear... Well, literally, in a sense, almost literally out yeah. of thin air. Yeah, but basically, they believe that you can you could remove Saddam while preserving all the other institutions tied to his government. Coincidentally, when they went in, not only did they remove Saddam, they also deliberately went about demolishing all of the institutions of the Iraqi state that they could yeah. in, a, in a total way. Well, it, uh, it, it turns out that you can't really remove um, the state from its dictator very easily. <laughs> uh, it will tend to all collapse. I mean, in terms of the, the kind of th stuff that we're talking about here is essentially in terms of the planning for the war. I mean, even details in terms of how Iraq was actually invaded, it was a major sticking point between the Department of Defense yeah. and the Bush administration of how many troops they should be sending in. Mm -hmm. So, for instance, the guy on the, um, the overall head of the American military in the, Hidley, in the Middle East, uh, Zinni, basically predicted that it would take about 300,000 troops. Yeah. When this came to a debate in the administration, Donald Rumsfeld came up with a counter-proposal that had, we should invade Iraq with 10,000 troops. So there's a slight discrepancy <laughs> yeah. there. Admittedly, he, was, he only said that as a bargaining position. Yeah. I think in the end they only did it with something like 150,000. Yeah. Which was markedly smaller than what they had in 1991, mm. where they didn't even plan to occupy the country in yeah. any fashion at all. But yeah, and, and these ideas um, all fit in with this overall concept of what some people call Powell Doctrine, which obviously Colin Powell yeah. uh, kind of formulated, uh, was trying to make a thing. <laughs> um, it was this idea in the Bush Jr. administration of how America should use its military force in the 21st century. And it's kind of an extension of what the Clinton administration was doing in the sense of um, you go in for a limited war. I believe George uh, Bush Jr. used the phrase preventative war. Mm. Which is, um, yeah, a rather marvellously dystopian phrase uh, that we have a preventative war. But it's this idea that America should go in, use overwhelming force to, to root out the bad guys, and then fly out again, triumphant. And the natural good is, is this um, post-Cold War idea yeah. of the nat people end will naturally history. want to be, yeah, natural end of history. For, um, for people who don't know, when the Soviet Union collapsed, there was a guy, what was his name? Francis Fukuyama. Francis Fukuyama, who wrote a book called The End of History, basically saying, liberal democracy forever, it will be great. Um, and it wasn't. 
Well, we've, uh, we have increasingly learned this over the last yeah. 25 years. So, but basically, it's this idea that once you remove the bad guys, people will naturally form democratic governments. Yes. Uh, which did not work out, needless to say. So, But essentially, when you're trying to understand the Bush administration's idea of what would happen after the war, you have to understand this very optimistic view of how international relations would go in the 21st century. But first, Scott, I think we need to talk about the elephant in the room. Yes. Oil. Oh, oil. <coughs> oil. Oil, oil, oil. Okay, yeah, so this is the big one. This is, if public wisdom would probably hold that oil was the main motivating factor behind the US invasion of Iraq. I mean, the problem is that we talk about oil and we just say the oil, oil. but there's basically two separate arguments involved in there. And the first one is quite simple, and it's that... The Bush administration invaded Iraq specifically for personal gain. Mm-hmm. And it's not just re- restricted to oil. Basically, the, the Bush administration invaded Iraq in order to basically tear the country up in such a mm-hmm. magnificent way that it would have to be reconstructed by American contractors. Mm-hmm. Which in the end did kind of happen. Yeah, but I, I don't think they made a profit out of it. <laughs> probably. Well, I mean, there's profit for the American public oh, and yes. profit for individuals. Yeah. but. I mean, do we have anything to say against that? I think that it... I don't think it was very... The main thing... Well, do the other side of the argument first, but I think there's the same tack you can use with both of them. Yeah, and the other side of the argument is that it was oil, but oil in the sense of the American national interest in mm. terms of American energy security. So, essentially, ever since President Carter, yeah, uh, American... And even before, American administrations have been acutely aware of the importance of oil to American national security and the economy. Mm. Yeah, they learned this quite badly in the 70s when, okay. as, a result, yeah, as a result of the Arab-Israeli, uh, 1973 Arab-Israeli war, uh, the price of oil went up massively and basically caused about 10 years yeah. of economic stagnation in America. And as a result of that, the argument is that essentially America needs to secure the uninterrupted flow of oil supplies. Yeah. And that essentially means a massive focus on the Middle East, because that's where most of the world's oil supplies are. And in particular, Iraq is a problem because it's one of the world's major oil producers. Mm. But obviously it's intransigent, it's opposed to America, Mm -hmm. and it's also got a government-controlled oil supply, which is also a problem. But Callum, what was it like in 2003? What was it like? (laughs) As as a joke that didn't land. Uh, Okay. I mean, the problem is... Uh, yeah, I think the problem is that in general, if you want to secure Iraq's oil supplies, invading the country is not necessarily yeah. the best way of going about it. In addition to the obvious risks, which involve the fact that the oil infrastructure might all get blown yeah. up, as Iraq did to Kuwait's yeah. oil supplies back in uh, 1991. Yeah, I, I, so I agree that the problem uh, with both of these arguments is that um, it's not so much that we have evidence to directly contradict it, it's just that we don't really have evidence for it. Yeah. Uh, while, while certainly, as, as we've said... Um, oil is always a long-term strategic consideration in American Middle East policy. We don't have any concrete evidence to say that it was a major motivating factor behind the Iraq invasion. It, it doesn't really appear in any of the internal minutes of departmental meetings. It doesn't... It comes up a couple of times in terms of the idea of reconstructing Iraq. Yeah. The idea that... But this is in a more specific sense. The idea that the reconstruction of Iraq would pay for itself because it yeah. could be done out of Iraqi oil revenue. Yeah. But it's, there's no, you know, we don't have any evidence of Bush and 
Rumsfeld sitting around plotting their oil riches. Mm. It, I mean, in terms of the reconstruction, yeah. like reconstructing Iraqi oil infrastructure did go to Halliburton, which obviously Dick Cheney was CEO of yeah. in between the uh, both Bush administrations. Mm. Do you know what actually happened to Iraq's uh, oil infrastructure there? Because I remember you saying that yeah. it basically did not end up in American hands at no, all. No, it, it didn't. I mean, years and years after that, Iraq's oil infrastructure remained nationalised. I, I believe it's still nationalised now. Mm. Um, I know it was, you know, up until sort of five years ago. That's the, uh, but, um, you know, it remains nationalised. Iraq remains a member of OPEC. Uh, it remains as, as you know, effective as OPEC might be now. Yeah. But essentially, <laughs> and, and, you know, within half a decade, a full decade afterwards, didn't sign any major oil contracts with American companies. You know, and the main thing I would think is if... If oil was a major motivating factor behind it, why did America... Um, well, just because uh, they failed doesn't mean they didn't try. Yeah, but, <laughs> oh, yeah. but um, you can say, you know, maybe they're just really incompetent. But yeah. also, that's really a fallacious argument. <laughs> yeah. yeah, but also yeah. you can say that. It, essentially, you know, you think they would have done more. Yeah. You know, they, they didn't try and break apart. You know, if anything... They actively tried to preserve Iraqi institutions and failed massively. You know, <laughs> the fact that Iraqi oil remained nationalised was kind of a was kind of a, mi- a miracle in a yeah. way. Um, you know, it, they didn't do what you would think they should do if their goal was to seize control of the oil. Mm. And that doesn't mean, like I said at the top of this podcast, maybe in the next twenty years, fifty years, we'll get a lot of new documents that completely that you know we'll get a lot of secret meetings where they. They planned the... Constru- the they dive in oil money. Like, yeah, so yes, yes in indeed. But as working with what we've got now, with the information that we have, it looks like oil wasn't a big motivating factor. It just didn't come up that much. Yeah. I mean, here's the thing. We, we can't dismiss it entirely because, as we say, yeah. you know, it's a massive national security yeah. concern and kind of rightfully so. Yeah. You can't criticise, like, the fact that it's on their minds. But it, it, I just think that the focus in the in the public mind is definitely yeah. a, a fallacious exaggeration. Yeah, it, it, it's not as important as their genuine belief that Saddam was evil. <laughs> you know, real or imagined or not, they, they did, they seem to genuinely believe that they were doing everyone a favour yeah. by, by invading. Well, Scott, we, we've come to the point in the episode where I have to talk about Richard Nixon. All right. Take it away, Kyle. You're oh, the biggest well... Nixon fan I know. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, obviously, this is the main point of our discussion in actually explaining the Iraq war, the role of ideology, essentially, yeah. in explaining the decision to go to war. And we all know the word for that ideology, and that's neoconservatism. But neoconservatism is a word that's more often used and understood, especially because it's become essentially synonymous precisely with the foreign policy of Bush, which is more which is more of a symptom of it. Mm-hmm. Essentially, neoconservatism is a reaction to the Cold War conservatism, the conservatism of the early Cold War, embodied by people like Eisenhower and Nixon, who were essentially accommodated to the New Deal regime which had been established under FDR in terms of economic interventionism, something of a commitment to civil rights, well... <laughs> a uh, no, nominal no, commitment. Not, not under Nixon. <laughs> well, uh, no. No, okay, Nixon nominally committed to civil rights. Yeah. Uh, but if you listen to his tapes, <laughs> yeah, okay. because, uh... yes. <laughs> and most importantly, foreign interventionism. Now, neoconservatism is a reaction against that, first embodied most obviously by Reagan. So, on the one hand, you challenge the economic intervention 
with the sort of the massive privatization, liberalization of the American economy in the 1980s. But the interesting part of it for us is the change in foreign policy. Because the foreign policy of previous administrations had essentially been what we would call realism. Uh, so realism in political and international relations is essentially talking about the primacy of power in international relations over ideals or morals. Mm -hmm. Which is, of course, as we all know, exemplified quite well by Nixon. Nixon, Kissinger. And Kissinger, yeah. Nixon and Kissinger. And essentially, as people like Reagan saw it, that was essentially, in a way a retraction of American power and American greatness. So Nixon's foreign policy could be brutal, yeah, uh, but, brutal, cruel, but, but, but it was but, also, but always calculated. But always oh. calculated, <laughs> and interestingly, also willing to cooperate in many yeah. ways. So, you know, it's Nixon that goes to China, yeah, it's Nixon that engages Nixon in Dayton. Nixon and Kissinger stomped, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? They're, they are very willing to do whatever it takes to achieve their goals. And if it means invading Cambodia, if, then if fine. It mean, if it means working with China, then also fine. Yeah, it, they are... Nixon is... Well, Nixon was evil, but in a very immoral way. Nixon, <laughs> Nixon himself and Kissinger, you know, didn't believe in, you know, good or bad action. It's more like they, they will just take whatever makes sense to them. But as a part of that, they were also willing, as a part of their yeah. overall strategy, to reduce American commitments. Yeah. So the Nixon Doctrine, they pulled back and they were more willing yeah. to rely on their allies, yeah. which sometimes worked out, sometimes yeah. did not. Um, and also the thing is, when you're looking at the world in those terms, in terms of these real politic uh, things, that's how you're viewing all the other actors as well. Yeah. So not only are you completely divorced, from, you view yourself as completely the of ideology. Yeah. You view, uh, you assume that everyone else will also take the most um, rational, or what you believe yeah. to be a rational action. Well, that's why it enables cooperation in an ironic yeah. manner. Yeah. But when Reagan comes to power, and Reagan is a sense a kind of insurgent force within the Republican mm. Party, overturning not only the liberal consensus of the mm. previous, yeah. um, you know, 30 or so years, but also the conservative consensus, and his new vision for foreign policy is... Well, very yeah. different. It's based, first of all, strongly on a vision of American moral supremacy mm. and the necessity yeah. of, how should I put it, uh, spreading America's it vision abroad. Yeah. Well, yeah. you might have heard, you heard the phrase of the evil empire. Yeah, uh, that's that, perfectly that, that's encapsulated. Soviet Union. Yeah, so it's, America is good, uh, their enemies are bad, mm. and it is morally good for the world yeah. if America intervenes and also, in, in foreign affairs. As a cor corollary of that, the necessity of American strength yeah. as a means of producing that. So it's Reagan takes you know, the American military to heights never seen before in terms of military spending. Yeah. And then, in a sense, doesn't actually do all that much with it. Because, of course, it's only ten or so years after Vietnam, yeah. after the Vietnam so, War is over, and even Reagan can't yeah. get people riled up and, enough. And, to... and, and, you know, in, in that last term, Reagan wasn't really there all that much. Yeah. Uh, I mean, he was physically present, but uh, in his mind. But the was... point is that the Reagan revolution, ideologically, really sets the tone mm. for Bush. Because yeah. Bush is really Reagan's successor in terms of his overall rhetoric, is yeah. that no very Christian, moralizing yeah. style. He essentially inherits the Reagan vision of the world, but in a post-Cold War context. Yeah. And following that, as we say, we have this, the end of the Cold War, oh. that end of history moment. Yeah. Which is essentially 
In a, I mean, would you call it a vindication of that viewpoint in a way? I think they saw it. As they a definitely saw it. Sorry, yeah, yeah. They definitely you know they they fought the fight and then Russia, you know, they um, they liberalized uh, in for a given definition at least for the nineties. Yeah. Russia, Russia for a liberalized brief for a brief period. Yeah, and um, yeah, they they definitely saw it as a vindication of it, which is important mm. because you know they essentially thought you know America could. No, I won't say do no wrong, but they were definitely very optimistic about how. I mean, I think the reason why I've gone on so long about the opposition of um, neoconservatism to this older realist strain in um, American sort of foreign policy making is when we talk about neoconservatism, it's usually juxtaposed with liberalism, liberal idealism, the belief Mm. that. Uh, yes, America should support liberal democracy abroad, but through international institutions yeah. and things like that. And that's usually what it's juxtaposed against. Yeah. But the problem is, is that, because that doesn't have much of a constituency within the sort of Republican Party, mm. if you want to explain why, the, if there was ever a reason why they wouldn't have gone into Iraq, it would have been this more calculated mm. approach yeah. to foreign policy making. And so it's very important to see why that method, why that was so dead, yeah. essentially, by 2001. Mm-hmm. And I mean, and it's all not only is it dead by 2001, yeah, sorry, it's dead by 2001, and then 9 11 happens. Yes. And 9 11 supercharges that moralized vision yeah. in the post Cold War world. Well, yeah. Well, not only do they believe that they are morally in the right, but they're suddenly everyone got about 10 times more threatening. Yes. And Saddam goes from, in their minds, moderately evil to like super evil. And must be, yeah, must be taken out. And also, in a sense, uh, irrationally evil. Yeah, because under the old system, you could, if you, as long as the conditions were right, you could contain someone like Saddam. Yeah. He wouldn't necessarily do something yeah. completely off the wall. Yeah, he would only but, do it if it was in his interest. But, but if you believe that he's properly evil, yeah. Then... <laughs> so, like, this is the whole point about yeah. like the WMD connection. Is yeah. why bother? In yeah, a sense. Well, it's essentially well, one is public opinion. Yeah, but the other one is essentially this idea that yeah. We need some evidence, but even if we can't get all the evidence, he probably has them anyway. Hmm. So that, I think that's what they were operating hmm. under. And that intense moralising brings with it a kind of, you know, you call it a Manichaean view of the world, that the hmm. history and world politics is essentially a battle of good and evil. Yeah. Only two sides. There is no yeah. differentiation yeah. And, in evil. And so Saddam is, yeah. yeah, so Saddam is evil. I mean, none of us like Saddam. None of us like Al-Qaeda either. Hmm. But Saddam was also threatened by Al-Qaeda because Al-Qaeda yeah. wanted to overthrow the kind of... What he so, saw as corrupt... Yeah, because dictator, Saddam, was a, Saddam was a throwback to yeah, really, a Cold, the Cold War. A Cold War throwback, in yeah. a sense. You know, aligned with the Soviet Union, uh, yeah, etc. I mean, I mean, really, um, a bit to do a tangent, um, what America really did by invading Iraq was topple this Middle Eastern balance of power between yeah. old Cold War dictators and new um, Islamists. Yeah, and, and this, I mean, and to make a point, this continues to this day. I mean, yeah. like, what's happening in Syria is exactly is yeah. exactly the same the, case. The Assad's are the same. Yeah, literally the same ideology, Ba'athism versus, yeah. well, there aren't really that many dict- uh, democratic rebels left, essentially, yeah. versus a coalition of Islamists. Sure, yeah, because... Um, yeah, but uh, we'll save this topic for another yeah. day, I think, because it is very interesting. But yeah, essentially, um, the idea that all their enemies are in cahoots. Yeah. So, and yeah, I think that the ideological standpoint is the most powerful argument for why the Bush administration decided to invade. Um, yeah, because, and as we say, you know, ideology, we're not just talking about in terms of beliefs, in terms mm. of right and sort of right yeah. and wrong. But we're also talking about people's assumptions and preconceptions and how they see the world. Yeah. So we were talking about, when we're discussing the question of WMDs, this is something that came up a lot, where 
that kind of vacuum of intelligence yeah. led them to uh, lead themselves. They led themselves to war in terms yeah. of what how they interpreted it. Mm. And that's and the, the ideology is absolutely crucial in explaining why they could go to war based on yeah. such bullshit. Yeah, well, it, essentially, you have, to put this in summary, you have this pre-existing um, lobby uh, for the invasion of Iraq. Yeah. And then you have um, 9-11, which really... Um, catalyzes. Catalyzes. Yeah, everything. Uh, and allows all those... Pre- allows exaggerates those all of those pre-existing yeah. tendencies. It, it brings Bush, first of all as president, into line with the Iraqi anti-Iraq hardliners. Mm. And it allows the anti-pro-intervention the voices to come to the fore. Yeah. And, and, and also, 9-11 is great for public opinion. Mm. Because they use 9-11 and the threat of WMDs to, um, to yeah. galvanise public opinion. And launch what was... Although very controversial, you know, they did an alright job at galvanising mo- uh, a fair yeah. amount of Americans. Yeah, there, there's not really much major opposition to the war in yeah. terms of state institutions. Yeah. You know, um, at least, well, there, there, there were dissenting voices, but really, in the end, it never yeah. came to anything. Yeah, you know, I don't think we have time to get into Blair right now. I think I think we could probably do, at some point in the future, another Blair episode. But I find the Blair contrast very interesting, uh, because you have Blair who wants to go in for pretty much the same reasons, but he does not have the public support. And he doesn't have the support within his administration either. You know, senior, you know, like Jack Straw and the head of MI6 both think it's a terrible idea. We'll do do a Blair episode another day. Uh, But just talking about Bush, yeah, I think it is... um, it is very much this um, this galvanization of ideology brought on by nine eleven, mm. and if and if nine eleven never happened, we obviously we don't can't know what would have happened. Yeah, but you know maybe we would have gone more in sort of sanctions and routes like that. So what are we moving on to now? Uh, uh, well, I think we still need to discuss in terms of what we were talking about in terms of preconceptions. Yeah, and by that I mean we should probably talk about. Actually, do we want to talk about individuals first? Or like, yeah, we should do that. I was going to use. Um, I was going to do. Um, I, yeah. I, I was going to also bring up the big word, the Israel word. Uh. <laughs> ah, yes. We're getting to the good part. <laughs> okay. Oh my. Okay, Scott. Exposition me. Uh, so the Israel lobby um, is another sort of faction within the Republican Party, um, and the government, the government as a whole, there are um, Democrats and yeah. so on. But you know, it's this pro-intervention is for is another aspect of it, and it's a it kind of again nine eleven allows these voices to come to the fore. It's sort of how do I how do I, I think I we need this? to. Uh, probably explain the context around the argument of the Israel lobby, because it was essentially made by, again, going back to the question of realism, two international relations scholars uh, by the name of John Mietzheimer and Stephen Waltz. Uh Stephen Waltz. Uh, Mietzheimer in particular is a very influential uh, figure in the realist IR community. Uh Mietzheimer and Waltz were opposed to the war during the lead-up and wrote some interesting articles about it. And I think, because they came from this school of uh, realism, they were essentially kind of trying to understand why America would go to war so obviously against its own interests. Yeah. And so in so doing, they kind of came up with this explanation of the Israel lobby. Yeah. As kind of a response to that is the explanation of why does America go to war against its own, what Mm. they perceive to be America's national interests. Yeah. Of course... We also have to make the argument that it is against America's national interests to cooperate with Israel in this way. Yeah. Um... Certainly, yeah, and that's, I've, I've read some stuff on the centrality of the Israel lobby, and there are some people, um, I've got a Mirzheimer text in front of me, yeah. you know, uh, who really, really go for the Israel, the, the mm. idea that, um, 
you know, you've got these voices in government. And as well, they, they also emphasise the extent to which um, Israel was intelligence sharing with um, America. Mm. And how, basically, I fool, how, how I don't want a Mossad assassin to come to my door. Oh. But, um, <laughs> but equally, um, the, the idea that the Israel purposely fed them... Um, Certain data uh, that would lead them to invade uh, Iraq. Okay. Um, well. them. Yeah, um, or maybe again presented them with what they wanted to hear. Yeah, um, absolutely. Yeah, but basically he's got. Um, they put they uh, Mearsheimer and um, Stephen Walt uh, in this this book. Um, Israel, the Israel lobbying US foreign policy is the one I'm mainly yeah. coming from. Talk about a small group, um, including Paul Wolfowitz, they kind of identified Paul Wolfowitz, who we mentioned mm. earlier, as part of this Israel yeah. lobby. Um, small people who were, small group of people who were pushing the war basically since 91. But then the, the thing that Wolf, uh, Mearsheimer doesn't talk about is 9 11. <laughs> <laughs> that's the main thing I would say is missing in his book. He doesn't talk about 9 11 and his impact. And his idea is basically that you have this voice for invasion. And that it's going, uh, it's going to build, and that you know it will influence how the Bush administration views Iraq, and that war is kind of inevitable. And I don't really go for it. I know yeah. I brought it up, but I brought it up mainly it's, to it, kind of say it's interesting, but yeah. it forms a part of the but, picture. No, but I think it, it definitely is worth talking about in terms of, as we're saying, this neoconservative milieu, yeah. which Israel falls into quite nicely you know the yeah. idea of the um the only democracy in the middle east yeah, yeah. sort of Amer- it's sort of a representation of america's moral interventionist mission mm-hmm. because obviously you know the connection with the holocaust and yeah. the world war Two in yeah ending the holocaust and things like that it definitely is something that fits it kind of fits into the overall structure yeah. but is it any is it any more important than anything else? No, in well, that? I, I agree that these voices were kind of instrumental into furthering the idea yeah. uh, with administration. But also, some people have this idea of like secret meetings and and yeah. um, Wolf Wolfowitz is talking to Bush behind a closed door and yeah. he's like you know uh, with a with a star of David on the background. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We should invade Iraq and um, I mean, and there's probably there's not. like I, I don't know it's kind of weird like the connection of Israel to this whole thing in terms of. Israel comes up a lot in a way that I kind of don't understand, because on the one hand, like, the major connection is that during the 1991 Iraq war, um, Saddam uh, launched uh, Scud missiles, uh, only conventionally armed, but Scud missiles against Israeli cities, and as a part of his vision to see himself as the sort of the leader of the Arab world, Saddam was very pro-opposing Israel, uh, but on the other hand, I see these sort of suggestions that like, oh, Israel was the main beneficiary of the Iraq War, yeah, you know, as opposed to Iran, um, <laughs> yeah, as, as opposed to uh, America's main regional opponent. Yeah, um, uh, I, I'm, but, I'm not sure Israel has benefited that much from the Iraq War. Yeah, like in a sense, I guess it. Yeah, it, I they. Mean, but the originally, you know, it's interesting. There was discussion in the in the Bush White House of how like, oh, uh, if we invade Iraq, you know, this is really going to help the. Uh, the the peace process get back yeah. on track with the Palestinians well, it's a for no it's for a preventive no, absolutely it's a, no reason it, it just comes up and, again, again it's they're making the world a better place and the only way they know how yeah. is dropping bombs until everyone gets along you know yeah. if there are uh, yeah but no I so I think it's part of a puzzle right yeah because you have this line of continuity you do have some continuity continuity between pre nine eleven and post nine eleven mm. of people who want war and. I think 9-11 is really what does it for Bush. Yeah. Made Bush as president. And it's very useful, it's necessary for this process that happened. That once Bush kind of had the idea to invade Saddam, he's got people 
to tell him to do it. He's got yeah. people to align himself with, and he has political voices who he can kind of bring to the fore. But, you know, it's not the whole story. Mm. And I don't think... And there's like, Israel is another voice telling them to do it. Israel is another powerful voice telling them to do what they already want to do. Yeah. You know, they will definitely want to invade Iraq very early on. And this idea of the Israel lobby, I will buy insofar as it helps along the process. Yeah. But again, but I think you can't ignore the other considerations, which is, you know, um, pro-Israel lobby kind of... Um, people who kind of back their historiographical interpretation tend to ignore 9-11 a bit too much. Mm. I think you can't really ignore it. And they tend to ignore the other ideological elements. Um, as if it's kind of, they kind of treat Bush and co as if they're kind of these blank slates who, yeah. get, who get pulled between these uh, I mean, political I mean, poles. I actually think that sort of moving on to discuss the personalities, yeah. is Bush not kind of a blank slate? He, <laughs> he does not actually but, come up that much in yeah, terms of yeah. the overall discussion um, of decision making. Bush was not that big on international diplomacy. Yeah. He, he, that was not his forte. Mm. Uh, he came to power, um, as you said, a bit of an isolationist, yeah. a bit of more domestic focused. Yeah. Um, and yeah, he did not, it really, it is that 9-11, um, that 9-11, it really is 9-11 yeah. that bring, turns Bush's gaze onto the world. Mm. And makes him makes him that president that we remember today for starting all those in, uh, foreign wars. Yeah, um, yeah. So yeah, I think Bush he's um, he doesn't come in. He's pretty Iraq neutral until nine eleven. Mm. He's pretty. To be fair, there's a very famous memorandum that was given to to Bush in the early days of administration, basically saying Al Qaeda is dangerous. We should do. Yeah. They might attack us. Which people make a lot of how that didn't know nothing happened. Yeah. But at the same time, what I will say is, it's the first time, the first like few months of your administration, you're getting a lot of memorandums. Yeah, you're, you're getting a lot of memos. You uh, you don't have time to read them all. And at the time, at the time in like March two thousand and one, if someone tells you about this random terrorist group you've never heard of, yeah, will, will you pay? But I guess my point is to say Bush missed that one as well. You know, his he he. I think it's probably nine eleven is like his. A sudden realization of we must do something, mm. and I think it's this desire to do something which eventually which <laughs> quickly, um, because the ground was fertile, to quickly must have metastasize into we must invade Iraq. Yeah, I mean, um, so it's sort of round off our discussion. Should we actually talk a bit about what happens when they invaded Iraq? Yeah, uh, do you, do you have anything to more say about like Cheney or Rumsfeld or Colin Powell? Any of these characters? Any of these person? <laughs> any of these, these interesting individuals? Uh, not really, I because I feel like a lot of the discussion with Cheney basically revolves around um, either his connection with Halliburton, yeah, or specifically it's sort of, sort of what we mentioned at the beginning—the fact that he was Secretary of Defense yeah. back in 1991 and was a major voice arguing not to invade Iraq, and then continued to insist that this was the right decision for many years. You know, as late as like 97, as uh, he said with astounding, you know, predictive clarity, oh, we invaded Iraq, yeah. it would have turned into, you know, a quagmire, as he says, hey, we, would have, we would have been like a dinosaur in a tar pit, yeah. well, that I, we would never be able to get out. While you talk, I'm going to get a counter-quote here, there's quite a good yeah. um, quote I read. Yeah, go, go ahead. Yeah, basically, with re- predicted with remarkable clarity what would actually happen when they went into Iraq under his direction 12 years yeah. later. It's um, this quote here, I think this is from the Gore's book. Yeah. Um, Retired General Jay Garner, the head of the OHRA, uh, when asked shortly before the war in March 2003 about the overall duration of the American presence in Iraq, responded, I'll probably come back to hate this answer, but I'm talking months. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, no, th- yeah, but this is precisely the point. Is even you know, it's kind of, Jay Garner was the guy that had been yeah. there over the course of yeah. desert, uh, over the course of like desert fox yeah. and me commanding the fly zone. He probably should have known better. So to sort of round this off, eventually, as we all know, they do invade yeah. Iraq, and well, we're still there. Well, they're still there. <laughs> they're still there. So yeah, I, I assume as we get more and more into into recent history and things that people are living right now. Yeah. You know, needless to say, it was a fucking disaster. But the reason why I think it is actually important to go into a little detail about yeah. it is because we talk so much about the ideology and the preconceptions. Yeah. The same preconceptions that led them to go to war in the first place also led them to completely fuck yes. up the occupation and administration process. Yeah. So immediately after the invasion of Iraq, a few interesting things happened. First of all, the general in charge of the invasion, Tommy Franks, retired. Because he basically <laughs> what he basically wanted this to be his like last hurrah. Yeah. And of course he had planned the invasion, but he had not planned it for after his retirement. <laughs> and a number of sort of regimental and divisional yeah. commanders were suddenly told uh, and this is after they have, you know, just after defeating Saddam, please come up with an occupation plan for your territories by tomorrow. Yeah. All of a sudden, it's Thursday and it has to be in on Friday. Yeah. They were faced with an essential problem, which was they did not want to engage in nation building. They did mm. not want to administer a country, but they had just invaded one. Yeah. And and, <laughs> and as they were invading, um, all the institutions that they thought they could keep intact were collapsing because they all depended on Saddam. Well, they government. didn't just collapse. The American government then, um, realising that they actually did need to administer Iraq yeah. now in some degree, established the, um, what was it, the Coalition Provisional Authority? Under, uh, first under Jay Winter, and the, uh, who was who had been the general in charge of the region for some time, and then was given to some guy called Paul Bremer. Paul Bremer then decided to take three actions, which would essentially completely dismantle what was left of the Iraqi state. The first action he took was that he declared that Anyone who was who had been a member of the Iraqi Ba'ath Party could not participate in the civil or military administration. And, and Callum, if you were a civil servant under Saddam... If under this one-party totalitarian regime, <laughs> it was quite important to be a party member. And as a result, pretty yeah. much the entire administration was fired overnight. Second of all, they decided to disband the Iraqi military. They decided to tell... Several hundred thousand people, all armed with guns, <laughs> that they were now fired. Yeah. And if they didn't already have a gun, then they could go and get one from one of the bunkers that the Americans had left around the country because they were too afraid to blow them up in <laughs> case they had chemi- those chemical weapons yes. inside of them. And the third decision that Paul Bremer took was, of course, to start privatising large parts of the Iraqi economy mm. because it was, um, uh, being a Cold War throwback, mostly state-owned. Yeah. On the other hand... He just decided to engage in a major economic restructuring just after invading a country. Which, by the way, has no government. Which has no government. <laughs> also, coincidentally, firing everybody, yeah. those, <laughs> firing everybody in those institutions as well. Yeah. So, yeah, they, you could say America made all the wrong decisions. Yes. <laughs> And, and that's what we are going to say. But, that's, but the reason why they engage in actions like this is, as we say... They literally thought that they could just build a government from yeah. the ground up it, in in days. Literally this idea that if you remove the bad men, people will naturally just form a democratic government. Um, yeah. And it's not what happened. People, people decided they didn't really like being fired, or they didn't really like other people. Or didn't and, like being occupied. Yeah, by they didn't really like being occupied by a foreign force. And um, yeah, they thought, hey, some, some of those people... 
uh, especially a lot of those ex-Iraqi military personnel, for, um, well, maybe we should fight against this. And they, they went on to form a group called Islamic State <laughs> yep. uh, many years later. You know, it's not it, at every level is so obvious about what would happen. Yeah. It's not just destroying the Iraqi state. It's also, consider the ethnic makeup of yeah. Iraq. Yeah. It's 60% Shiite, 20% Sunni Arab, yeah. and 20% Kurdish. If you and the Ba'athist regime, Saddam's regime, well, was dominated by Sunnis. Yeah. So naturally, if you overthrow that and install a new government, it's probably going to be dominated by Shiites. Especially if you remove all of those yeah. Sunnis who were yeah. administering the government before. <laughs> the problem is... Coincidentally, <laughs> um, America's main regional rival... <laughs> is Iran, yeah. the historic leader of the Shia peoples. So, so perhaps, if you invade this country, you might end up turning it over to, to your major right. regional which, opponent. Which has kind of happened. Which, yes. Yes, basically. And at the same time, if you fire all the military, which, by the way, is all made up of Sunnis, yeah. because Shiites couldn't serve the military, uh, they might have something to say about this. Yeah. Um, and, and we all know how well Sunnis and Shiites necessarily oh, get and, along. And who's your other enemy in Afghanistan? Uh, it's only a radical Sunni Islamist yes. um, organization. Maybe they might enjoy <laughs> recruiting a bit. Yeah, I mean, I, we probably didn't need to tell you it was a bad idea, but, but it was worth explaining how much of a bad idea it is. It was a bad idea, indeed. So, and that brings us to today. Uh, I think Iraqi forces have basically. Finally removed ISIS. They from. finally removed ISIS, but I mean, one element we haven't talked about at all now was the Kurds, and now yeah. there's, I mean, it's it seems to have died down for the moment, but that, there's a burgeoning conflict with Kurdistan. Well, because because the Shiites are united against ISIS, who hate them both. Yeah. But when you remove ISIS, suddenly Kurdistan, which as we said was basically involved fully an autonomous region. Yeah. Until two thousand and three, independent. Um, now I mean, once. It has been basically independent since then. It's just yeah. now that the Iraqi government has dealt with yeah. the Sunni problem, now they can deal with the Kurdish yeah. problem as well. And the main problem America faces is that they can't leave because if they leave, then Iran will come in. I yeah. mean, if it's Iran will formally add, yes, I mean, Iran might formally just <laughs> absorb Iraq. Um, <laughs> which, yeah, you, you don't, they need they need America there to stop Iran from coming in because if I think if Iran formally controlled Iraq, they would control about one quarter of the world's oil. Yeah, uh, which obviously they don't want. But at the same time, they need Iran to prop up the Shiite government that they've created. So yeah, um, not a great place to be. Yeah, um, and uh, not a great person in government now to handle it. No, uh, well, not that it'll... Obama made a great job of it. No. Uh, so, you know, I think um, again, uh, whether you're a Democrat or Republican, Americans only know one way to make the world better, yep. and that's to drop all their bombs until everyone gets along. Well, well, I feel like that's a nice moment. That's a, a, okay. a nice moment to end on. Um, I believe um, next uh, next episode we will be sticking. Can, with, can, yeah, you want to do? I know what you want to do. Yeah, oh, you you say it. Well, uh, I'm I'm formally committing us here, Scott. So <laughs> uh, next episode we will be sticking with Iraq, but we will be going all the way all the way back to the origins of civilization oh, itself. I I. Sure, we'll do it. We'll do, we'll, we'll do it. So we have to challenge it. So uh, we had so. the idea of doing episode one fire, but we thought we'd open. <laughs> we'd save it for episode more, two. We thought we'd open with something a bit more within lived experience. Yeah. yeah so we're, we're uh, Callum said it. Callum said it. We're going to do Mesopotamia. And yes. uh, what yeah. about Mesopotamia, Callum? Uh, 
early state formation and the early agricultural and formation. the agricultural revolution. Oh, I, can, okay. I can um, feel your excitement coming through, uh, coming through the microphone. Thank you very much for listening to everyone. Uh, thank you indeed. This has been Arms for Oblivion, and until next time... Um, don't invade any countries. Until next time, yeah, don't drop any bombs. Don't be a dickhead. <laughs> All right. <laughs> be excellent to each other. Yeah.